Today's reading is from the book of James, verses 13 through 20. If I didn't know uh, where to find it, I would go to the last book, Revelations, and go backwards about eight pages, and you'll come to the book of James. So verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the earth gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering, from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Mark. I'm one of the Parkview pastors, as you may or may not know. And I know if you're a bit, you've been coming to East for any length of time, you're kind of reeling from the news about Pastor Doug moving to Minnesota. I want to assure you that it's, I'm reeling from it personally myself. I've so enjoyed working with Doug, and I'm a little bit uh, thankful that I get to come over here and preach more now, but that's beside the point. But uh, I want to just assure you that um, it is my personal uh, priority that we continue to maintain the health of East Campus here, doing everything we can to do that. And I want to share with you an exciting development as of Tuesday night's elder meeting. If you've been coming here for any length of time, you probably appreciate Elder Len Brooks. And Len has been so faithful here, has been serving in so many ways. And it, it was just a very clear and easy, unanimous decision Tuesday night to, uh, to label your own elder, Len Brooks, as Pastor Len Brooks of pastoral care here. He's going to be filling in and helping out and making sure your personal needs are met. Obviously, we're in a, in a search process, and we're going to be looking forward to having a new campus pastor. But I want you to just take a moment and to acknowledge and appreciate Pastor Len Brooks. All right, you can stop. If you clap too much, you'll torture him. You know how, how he is. But anyway, uh, Brother Len, we just appreciate you so much and uh, so, so thankful you're willing to do that. Uh, for the most part, on three out of four Sundays, I will be coming and be preaching with you, but I will be doing that between the two services at Central. So unfortunately, I won't have a lot of time to stay here. I'll be coming in and preaching and going back out. On the Sundays that I'm not doing that, you'll be hearing from Pastor Lynn and maybe some others as well. So we just encourage your prayers and faithfulness during this time. It's always difficult to endure a change like that, and I know how much you love Doug, and rightly so. I just had a chance to hear him speaking over at first service at, at Central, and what a, me a wonderful message, and you can look forward to that next week. And uh, we just appreciate he and the family so much. 
Real quick, just to get you back up to where we were, remember last week, uh, Pastor Doug took you through verses 7 through 12 of James 5 there, and you, and you saw the instruction, be patient, the Lord is coming. It's like, he's saying, it'll be okay then. Sort of slow down and take a breath. Let me remind you how this all turns out. Everything will be okay. And the reference to the farmer of just the patience between the rains, knowing that they will come and there will be a harvest. It reminded me of some of the writings from, from Paul where he said in Titus, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of our God, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or to the church in Philippi, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or his words to Thessalonica, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wait, be patient. He also instructed, establish your heart. Stand firm, be strong, strengthen your heart. Find encouragement and support and strength and power to establish your hearts in the truth of Jesus Christ and the certainty of his coming. James is giving him a pep talk for the depressed or the discouraged, the impatient and frustrated. He's saying, be patient and be strong. And then he warns him against some negative things, remember? He said, and no grumbling. Don't turn on each other. It's sad that that instruction had to be there, but human nature is interesting, isn't it? Things go wrong and we, we start to uh, misdirect some of our frustration and we take it out on the wrong people. And that's sad when that happens in the home or with friends and even it happens in the church. Tensions build up and the next thing you know, even the tiniest thing causes a blow up. Remember that instruction, you will be judged. This is not about salvation. Remember there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus He's referring to the discipline that comes with their behaviors. He's saying, look back, think of the prophets. Even the prophet Jeremiah had a hard life, grieved by sin, kept in a muddy cistern. But God did not forget. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Don't grumble and complain. And he says, don't swear by heaven or by earth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't lose control over temporary trials. Keep your focus on the return of Christ. I've entitled today's message, Brought Before the Lord. In the verses that Charge has read for us, there's some confusing statements, aren't there? There's some things that make you wonder what's going on. Let's just pray as we begin and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we give you thanks and praise for you are worthy. And Lord, we just thank you for the joys and the, the thrills of life when we come before you with the heavy things. And Lord, we just continue to pray for Doug and Natalie and the family as they are working through this time of transition. Lord, would you just bless them? And Lord, may we be a blessing to them as they go and supporting them in prayer as that new ministry begins there. Father, we just pray that you will watch over us here and just help us to make the right decisions and help us to remain effective and reaching out and loving people with the truth of Jesus Christ. Father, we just commit this time to you now and we ask you to be with us, to be in our midst, help us see what we need to see, to hear what we need to hear and respond accordingly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Uh, James is certainly going to both ends of the spectrum there, isn't he? From, from trouble to delight, from, from suffering to, to joy. In troubles and in hardships and trials, we're to pray. Now, that's extremely uh, significant instruction there, but it, it would be what I would, I would say is not situationally abnormal, Right? If we're facing illness, we're, we're probably very quick to pray. Or if someone dear to us is ill, we, we're quick to pray. Or if, if there's relational strife, we want to pray. We're asking God to do what only he can do there. Or if there's work or school stress or, or uncertainty, we're to pray. I would venture to guess that this instruction is commonly followed by many, especially for believers. If you are believers, you're going to go to prayer when you feel weak, when you feel frustrated or when you're in trouble, when you're helpless or you sense that there's no option, you're going to pray. And it's going to be, oh, Lord, please. Lord, in, in your goodness, in your kindness, and maybe you're, you're thinking of, of verses that go along with those promises and you're applying those scriptural truths in your prayers. That's a normal reaction for those who are in trouble. And James is saying it's appropriate. Do that. But even unbelievers will often pray in these situations, right? And the prayer might be different. At that point, it's, it's sort of a, a God, if you're there, would you please? Or God, if you do this, I will even, and then, and then there's some empty promises that are returned maybe, right? God, if you do this, then I will do this. Sort of let's make a transaction here. Uh, Dr. Paul Cedar says, too often in tough situations, we ask God why, but we would be better to ask God what. Lord, what are you saying to me through these trials? Father, what is it you would like me to see or learn from this difficulty? God, what action do you want me to take? Again, shifting the focus away from our frustrations back toward the greatness of God, understanding he has a plan. So again, obviously these prayers, when, thing, when there's trouble, they're, they're prayers that are a, really a cry for help, and, the, and it's appropriate. And that's what James is saying to do, cry out to God. But the other end of the spectrum, the cheerful, the happy, the, the joyful, the satisfied position of life, then, then we sing praises to God. Over the years, I've had different reactions. People, you know, won't sing for one reason or another, but I'll, I remember one very well. He just simply said, preacher, I don't sing. It's just better that way if I don't. <laughs> it's better for everybody. <laughs> but, but my question and response was, do you sing along with anything at all? Do you cheer at a sporting event? And the reason I asked that was because heartfelt, audible testimony of the greatness of our God is a must. Did you hear what I said? Heartfelt, audible testimony of the greatness of our God is a must. There's something in the act of praising God that positions our hearts. 
Think about that. When, when we're in trouble and we, we pray, we're positioning our heart, aren't we? We're recognizing we have a problem. It's too big for us, but it is not too big for God. So we're positioning God in his proper place as, as the one who has authority, the one who has the power, right? But on the other end of that spectrum is to recognize that when things are good, God is still in that proper place, isn't he? In the ultimate place of authority. It's due to him. James is saying, listen, position yourself properly before the Lord. Let me ask you a quick question here. Are you as quick to praise God in the good times as you are to pray in the desperate times? Those desperate times come where you can be really quick, right? Oh, God, help me now. You, you've got to step in here. I, I need you. But are we as quick to turn and give God praise for the good times? You have a habit here of singing the doxology. We'll sing it in a few minutes. What do we say? What do we sing? Praise God from, from whom all blessings flow. That's what James is saying to do here, isn't it? Give him praise. Recognize his proper place. If you struggle with this, if you're better at, at praying in, in those hard times than you are at praising in the good times, for me, one thing that was transformational in my personal life was journaling. Once I began journaling as part of my daily quiet time, I'd go back from time to time and I'd look back over those journal entries and what would I see? I would see how God was faithful. I'd look back at a certain date and time and I would remember how incredibly stressed I was at that moment. How, how desperate my cry was for God to move and to do something that only he could do. And then I could look back at that a few months or even a year later and say, God is so faithful. So now when I hit those desperate moments, those, those oh God help us now, sort of like when, when Doug says he's leaving. I already know God is going to be faithful. I know what he's going to do. And I believe that has sped up my response of praise in the good times, matching to that speed of prayer in the hard times. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church, or call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And there's a few questions that need to be answered here, right? Let's break it down. What is meant by sick? What's this anointing? What is James involving the elders for? And is this suggesting a transactional promise? Let's look at some other areas of the Bible to help. First of all, when we get to, the, to, the, to this idea of sick, is anyone among you sick? The definition really is, is to be weak or feeble, lacking energy or strength. There are two kinds of sickness that we see in Scripture. We see, first of all, physical sickness. In Luke 4, we have Jesus healing of, uh, people of various sicknesses, right? Of various uh, maladies. He heals them. That's uh, addressing the physically sick. In Acts 9, we have Tabitha who, who became sick and died. And Peter goes and prays for her, restores her life. If she was sick and died, I think we can assume that was a physical problem, right? She died. But we also see it as related to faith. 
Romans 14, accept him whose faith is weak or sick. In 1 Corinthians 8, wound their weak conscience. If you do that, you sin against Christ, suggesting that there's some level of strength missing there. So there's a couple of uh, possible uh, references here that could be had for sickness. And notice that he says involve the elders. He's, there's clear instruction to, value, to involve those who value prayer, who would be faithful in prayer. James likely has prayer warriors in mind as he communicates this. And, and I hope you have special people that you can call on in your life to pray for you at different times. A lot of people automatically just pray for or to ask prayer from the pastor. And when that happens, I make a discipline of doing it. I try to write that down, make some habit of doing that. And that's important. But honestly, I can tell you from the church world that there are people who are part of Parkview Church and other churches who are far better prayers than I am. They're just incredible about it. When, when they pray, it's just filled with scripture and, and it's just beautiful. And they're faithful and they understand the power of it. Back in my youth ministry days, we had an elderly woman who was one of our, our volunteers. Her name was Irene. And the students came to learn if they needed prayer, they would go to Irene. And she'd sit them down and she'd pray with them right that moment. It wasn't something that she was going to go do later. She'd pray with them right in that moment. And she'd teach them to pray in the process of it. And they knew that God would be faithful. He involves those who are Committed to prayer, the elders of the church. We have the anointing with oil here. Uh, two things we see that used for in scripture. First, we see it as a symbol of being commissioned or consecrated for a task. In 1 Samuel 16, we have the Lord tells Samuel to stop essentially pouting about Saul and, and, and the issues related to King Saul. And he says, go and anoint one of uh, Jesse's sons to be the next king. Remember, Samuel's fearful about it, but he ultimately does it. And he starts with Eliab, thinking, okay, this must be the one. But remember what the Lord said to Samuel? He said, don't look upon the appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And then he goes through Jesse's sons, and finally they've got to chase David out of the field, don't they? And then in that moment, David is anointed to be the next king of Israel. This is significant. And remember, even when, when Saul was pursuing David and trying to kill him, and then David had a chance to kill Saul, what did he say? He said, how could I raise my hand against what? Or who? The Lord's anointed. Even Saul had been anointed, right? It was a big deal. So you have the idea of being commissioned we're consecrated for a task, but you also have it addressing a physical need. Jesus tells of the good Samaritan, what does he do when he comes to the, to the man who's injured and been left half dead on the road? He anoints his wounds with oil and with wine to cleanse and soothe the wound. There's a medicinal side of that, a physical anointing for medical purposes. So we can identify what we know here. We can see that James places a value in practical medical action, if that's the side of it, and the power of prayer. But it gets a bit harder as we get into verse 15. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, there's a lot going on there. Is James really saying that any and all sick people will be healed if treated medically and properly prayed for? Is that what he's saying? Let me ask you another question, maybe to help us answer that. How well would church be attended every Sunday if all sick people could be systematically healed of any sickness and disease? I doubt we'd have empty seats, would we? The university hospital would be a little bit quieter, wouldn't it? The word would get out. Oh, just go there. Their elders will pray over you. If you take that idea even further, you could theoretically be sitting next to someone who is a couple thousand years old. But it's clearly not the Lord's intent to make this life go on forever, is it? We can certainly see the idea here also that James seems to be addressing weakness of character. The Lord will raise him up and forgive any sins. So we can now ask a question. Could, could James be addressing someone who could be physically suffering because of sin? It's very possible in some cases. Look at verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Therefore, confess and pray and be healed of your weaknesses. I love uh, Charles Swindoll. He has what he calls the five laws of suffering. Law number one, there are two classifications of sin, original sin and personal sin. Law number two, Original sin introduced suffering. Law number three, there can be a connection between personal sin and sickness. Consider the words of David in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Ever been there? Ever been in that place where sin, your own sin, weighed upon you so heavily that it made you physically sick? Just burdensome. David's laying it out here heavy. My bones were wasting away. I was groaning. Your hand was heavy upon me. The spirit bringing that conviction, right? Strength was sapped. I couldn't fight it anymore. Paul also warned the Corinthian believers saying that some of them were weak and sick and had even died because of their personal sin. So that was law number three. There can be a connection between personal sin and sickness. Number four, there's sometimes no connection. Too young to have their own personal sin or whatever. Law number five, 
It's not God's will that everyone be healed in this life. It's just not his will. There's another question here as it relates to, okay, James is talking to these people. I think season has something to do here. The time James is writing followed a season of ministry when Jesus had been healing the sick, remember? So we go through the Gospels, all these incredible healings, proof of his Messiahship, authenticating who he was. And then his disciples were sent out and healing. And then if you've been with us, we went through the book of Acts and we saw the Acts of the Apostles. But after that, there seemed to be some change. Interestingly, the, the great apostle Paul had a thorn in his own flesh that, that God wouldn't heal him of for one reason or another. He said it was so that his weakness would be made perfect, right? God's strength would be shown. He also kept Dr. Luke near him. And, and he left Trophimus behind because of sickness. The Apostle Paul couldn't gather some elders together and, and just heal Trophimus so he could come? It's not always God's will, is it? The end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Why does James use the example of Elijah here? Why about rain? He, he, Elijah is just another member of the human race, but he experienced powerful and obvious answers to prayer. What can we learn from Elijah's example uh, with these weather-related prayers? Very simple. It was what God wanted. Which should bring us back to James chapter 4, verse 3, where he had said, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I like to go to Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I like that because there's a progression there, isn't there? Can you see it? Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's this one comes before the other. Too often, I think, believers can suffer from seemingly lifeless or powerless prayer. We pray and we say the right things about prayer. When push comes to shove, it's done out of a sense of duty. We pray because we know we should. Or maybe there's just little faith that's mixed in with a bunch of mechanical action. Or maybe prayer has just simply been reduced down to a laundry list of needs and desires. God, we need this. God, do this. God, fix this. God, do this. Thank you. Amen. Isn't it interesting that James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And God heard his prayers. It's like he's saying powerful, effective prayer is not just for the Bible greats. These were people. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Look at verse 19. 
my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone should bring him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This really could be seen as another shift in focus for, for, for James here, but uh, we can also see how he just remains concerned about the spiritual well-being of these people. It's a continual thought. Uh, I'd, I'd initially given some thought to doing an entire message just on these two verses and really chose not to because James has laid so much of the groundwork here already for this issue. He's saying, listen, this is how we treat one another. And don't be judgmental or grumbling or complaining or giving preference to the rich. Don't show partiality. And now he's saying, listen, if somebody wanders away, chase them down. He's speaking of Christian brothers and sisters here. He's saying, go after them. Someone should bring them back. And save him from death and a multitude of sins. Is James suggesting that a believer can lose their salvation? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. In the Jewish line of thinking, uh, death and life were seen as trajectories. A person who strayed from the truth of Jesus was living life on a trajectory of death. Saying, pull them back from that trajectory. Have you personally been pursued by someone at some point in your life? You were just a little off track or just not on the mark. And, and someone came and said, what are you doing? Is everything all right? I sense something's going on in your life. How can I help you? I'm worried about you. If you've been there, you know how wonderful that is. Or, or, and if that's the case, I'd ask you do, you, do you love others enough to pursue them? Author and teacher Dr. Howard Hendricks tells a story of a young man who strayed from the Lord but was finally brought back by the help of a friend who really loved him. When there was full re repentance and restoration, Dr. Hendricks asked this Christian how it felt to be away from the Lord. And the young man se said, it seemed like he was out at sea in deep water, deep trouble, and all his friends were on shore hurling biblical accusations at him about justice penalty, and wrong. But there was one Christian brother who actually swam out to get me, would not let me go. I fought him, but he pushed aside my fighting, grasped me, put a life jacket around me, and took me to shore. By the grace of God, he was the reason I was restored. He would not let me go. Isn't that cool? The idea that we have been brought into the fold of Christ by his grace. And maybe we've been brought back when we've strayed at times. And would we be the kind of person who seeks to bring others back as well? It's not about the believer saving the believer. Only Christ offers that salvation. But the believer helps bring them back on the right course. James concludes with this graceful thinking of covering a multitude of sins. James seems to be circling around with prayer here a little bit. Again, remember, he, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If you don't have because you, you don't ask, and if you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. And, and healing the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
Ancient historians respected and admired James as a man of faithful prayer in the temple. God certainly breathed the words through James, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. But how cool that God would direct him to communicate about prayer when it was a personal conviction and passion of his own. James had been nicknamed Camel Knees. The man's knees were ugly and calloused because he did that which he instructs others to do, to pray. Remember verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And if any, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. All the way, covering all those, all those things is coming before God and, and the connection of the polar opposites between trouble and, and happiness. And, and the idea is here that it all must be brought before the Lord. Wherever you're at in life, it, you've got to come before the Lord. got to bring it there before him. And trust God for the results. Two and a half decades ago, my father was wasting away from pancreatic cancer. And I remember wrestling through scripture at that time and, and just wrestling with the Lord about it. And in my mind, I had a very logical plan that God should follow because that would honor his kingdom. It would honor him. You know, if God honored my father and healed him, then my father would certainly continue on in serving him. So it made sense, right? So I told God what he should do. Uh, but I remember going to my dad and, and I asked him at one point, I said, Dad, is this just a matter of not enough faith? Is it that simple? Or we, do we just not have enough faith that, that God will heal you? And his words to me were, son, we can never, ever doubt the ability of God to heal anyone or do anything. But we must be certain of our ultimate healing when we are with him as believers. We're not to presume upon God the specifics of what he intends for this life. We just aren't told but we know the healing that awaits his children in his presence. Our Lord is so good. God is so faithful. James is just saying, make sure we come before him with everything. 